if y'all would uh, turn to Joel in the Old Testament. It's uh, right after Hosea, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. It's, a, it's not very long, so if you flip too fast or too far, you'll go right past it. Uh, Scott had asked us about a year ago if uh, we'd be willing to like teach for two Wednesday nights on something. And uh, uh, he said minor prophet, part of a minor prophet, something like that. So uh, I started looking around. I, I was looking for something that was short, you know, so I could get through it in two, two weeks. And uh, I said, oh, Joel's only three chapters. I'll, I'll be able to get through that in two weeks. And then I started reading Joel and uh, it's not, I mean, it's not an easy text at all. And uh, so uh, I hope y'all will bear with me. Uh, uh, first thing I'd like to do is just kind of give you a little bit of an overview of Joel. Uh, Joel's name uh, means Yahweh is God, okay? And uh, it starts out, uh, the book starts out, uh, Joel says he is the son of Pethuel, and Pethuel means persuaded of God. We don't know anything about Joel except what we can learn from this little three-chapter book, okay? Uh, Joel was a common name in the Scripture, there's uh, numerous references, about 13, I think, people named Joel in the Old Testament. First uh, Samuel, uh, Chronicles, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, you find people named Joel all the way through there, okay? But none of them are the prophet Joel uh, that wrote this book, okay? So, uh, anyway, uh, they, as far as when the book was written, they don't know that either, okay? Uh, there's different viewpoints about it. Uh, some think it was written about 900 BC before the exile uh, to Babylon. Uh, it is centered in the, what we would call the southern kingdom in Judea, uh, Judah, the nation of uh, Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, it, uh, but they're not sure when it was written. Some think it was written right before the, the exile and then there's probably the more popular view now is that it was probably in the fourth or fifth century BC, which would be after the exile, okay, when they had come back and, uh, and were living in, in uh, Jerusalem and were, had rebuilt uh, the temple and, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, but it really doesn't matter for us when it was written uh, because the message is what's important, okay? And uh, uh, there's good uh, reasons for each one of those times. Uh, you can find justification to support each one of those views. Uh, you can also find things that argue against each one of those views in terms of when it was written. But we don't worry about when it was written. Uh, uh, it's, that's incidental to the prophetic message. Uh, we're going to look at each chapter, uh, kind of an overview. Uh, Joel starts out, uh, it's a chapter about uh, God's judgment on uh, the people uh, on their land. Uh, they've had uh, a series of uh, locust invasions. Uh, they've had a drought, a serious drought. And uh, so there's basically no food. There's no agricultural production. And so the ch first chapter is God's judgment through agricultural disaster and a call for repentance. Joel calls him to repentance. The second chapter uh, actually uh, covers about three things. Uh, it's uh, first, uh, it's a, a prophetic uh, message about the imminent coming of the day of the Lord, 
okay, for the people, and then a call to repentance, and then God's response to their call, their repentance by restoring them, and then it even gets into a little bit of future things for the nation, okay? Uh, so it, it kind of it kind of covers three things. Now the last part of chapter two that covers future things in the Hebrew scriptures is actually that that five verses or so is actually the third chapter of Joel. Okay, and then where chapter three of Joel starts in our Bibles is where the Hebrew Bible starts chapter four. So they actually have four chapters in Joel, and and we only have three. Okay, so the last chapter is more a chapter about the judgment of the nations, and then the future paradise type. Uh, environment for uh, the people of God, okay? And so we're going to be looking at all that, but we're going to spend most of our time on the first two chapters uh, this week and next. So we may not get through everything that we need to get through to finish out the entire book, but we'll, we'll try to touch on as much of it as we can when we get through. Uh, so I'd like for us to, to read the first chapter, and uh, we're just going to read through it. And so follow along in your Bibles as we read, uh, and then we're going to go back and we're going to try to analyze, uh, find as much in it as we can, uh, where things where God is speaking to us, okay? It says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father's? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it, thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord... The fields are the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up and the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, o, o priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. <clears throat> Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. As a destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. 
To you, O Lord, I call for the... I'm sorry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Is there like a, a light that I could get on this thing so I can see a little bit? Yeah, that's, that's much better. Thank you. <laughs> I'm reading in the dark. I'm trying to get the sunlight coming in the windows there so I can... My eyes are, really aren't that good. And <laughs> Thank you. Uh, okay, so we can see that uh, basically they, they're agriculturally they have been decimated. Uh, the very first verse, it says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Okay? This, you know, if, if, if we're looking at, I was thinking about those songs that we were singing just a minute ago. Uh, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. And then I called and you answered and you came to my rescue. And they typify what's going on in Joel. Uh, God gave prophets to the, to the people to his people. He gave them those prophets so that when they strayed and when they began to become uh, dull of hearing, that the prophets could wake them up, okay, and draw them back to himself. He could have just let them go. These judgments that are being foretold on these people could have just come to pass and wiped them out, okay? But God gave them a warning and called them to repentance, Okay, so the word of the Lord came to Joel. Now, uh, in 2 Peter 1.21, if you'll turn there real quick. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit produced the words of Joel, okay? Joel didn't just, you know, he wasn't, you know, of one political uh, persuasion or another. He just got tired of the way things were going in his country, and he got up and started speaking from a soapbox about it. He was moved by the Spirit of God to say what he said, okay? And uh, so that's why this is Holy Scripture and not just somebody's opinion. Okay, now we're going to talk just a little bit about locust plague. I want to ask a question without asking you to tell me exactly what your ages are. Is there anybody here that lived in Greenville in the year 1978 and are old enough to remember much about what happened in Greenville in 1978? If you would raise your hands, please. Not many, okay? Let me tell you what happened in Greenville in 1978. We had a grasshopper invasion, and it was unlike any grasshopper invasion I've ever seen. Uh, we've had some grasshoppers since then, but... Uh, these were very large grasshoppers. They were about, you know, three inches long grasshoppers, two and a half to three inch long grasshoppers, and they were everywhere. They came into downtown Greenville, where I worked at the time. I worked in the courthouse. They were all over the sidewalks. They were all at the sides of the buildings. Uh, when people would walk down the streets, these grasshoppers would just jump up all over them on their clothes and stuff. And uh, you, you could look out the window, and you could just see the sides of the buildings, the storefronts were just covered with grasshoppers. It was almost like a science fiction movie, Okay. And I was working with cotton farmers at the time, and uh, uh, they were worried that the grasshoppers were so bad out in the fields that they were going to just eat the crops up, okay? So they were 
taken oats, like oatmeal, okay, uh, in large quantities, mixing it with molasses, and then putting insecticide in it. And they were just spreading the stuff around the, on the edges of the fields to try to get the grasshoppers to eat it and die, okay? That's all they could do, okay? You can't really aerial spray grasshoppers. It just doesn't work, okay? And uh, so, but that was something like, you know, I thought, man, I don't know that I'll ever see grasshoppers like that again. But when we talk about a locust swarm, we're talking about something that makes that look like nothing, okay? Uh, we don't really even have to go back to uh, the scriptures to try to understand the magnitude of locust swarms because they still have them now, okay? There's still a problem over in the, the desert areas of the, of the Middle East now. And uh, they can actually cause quite a bit of destruction. I've got a picture. Uh, could y'all put that picture up for me? Okay, this is a picture that was taken somewhere over in the, in the desert part of the Middle East. And you can see those are, those are locusts on the ground like grasshoppers, okay? As far as you can see, they're swarming in the air and they're covering the ground, okay? Now, it's hard to say how serious this swarm is compared to others, but the estimates are that there can be as many as 50 billion, 50 billion locusts in a swarm. Okay, they stretch from several miles in, all, in several directions and uh, they, they land close to the evening, spend the night on the ground and take off in the morning. And they can eat up to 80 tons of crops a day. That's, uh, a locust swarm can eat up to 80 tons of crops a day. Okay, so you think about, man, they can destroy a lot of stuff really fast. Okay, it looks like from, the, from Joel here that it, this wasn't just a single swarm of locusts, but it was several uh, invasions of locusts. Uh, the desert locust, I did a little bit re research on, on desert locusts. The desert locust is the most deadly, or the most dangerous of all the locusts. And it actually undergoes a change. It, uh, it's normal... Uh, 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 biology is that it's a they call it a solitarious form and it's probably just kind of like what you'd see grasshoppers you know you think about grasshoppers but then they can have a population explosion and when they do they start crowding and getting together they actually change it's really kind of spooky they actually they, they change shape and they change color okay and then they start swarming out and find these big swarms and they can they can fly for thousands of miles okay they've, they've actually had a swarm in the 20th century that flew across the Atlantic Ocean from Africa to uh, North America so uh, you know it's the, they can go they can travel great distances and uh, they, they they're in these different forms the hopper form is actually the immature form it doesn't have wings okay so when he when uh, uh, Joel talks about the hopper okay that's the immature kind and they actually form what they call bands or like armies they just kind of just march you know across the land and uh, and they just eat everything uh, they eat everything in sight and uh, uh, so that's you know that's just a, a kind of a foretaste of, of what these people were facing this was not a this was not a industrialized society that we're talking about here they totally depended upon their agriculture okay so when there was no agriculture they're basically destitute okay now, you would think that if they're basically destitute and they're starving to death, that they would turn to God. But obviously, they had to have some prodding to turn to God. Because Joel had to speak out to him and call him to repentance. 
okay? Uh, and so, the, uh, the, the, that's the interesting thing. Uh, you would normally think that, okay, these are God's people. Uh, they've gone through probably two or three years of drought and locust invasions. And, you know, don't you think they would recognize that this is coming from God and that they should, they should repent and, and, and seek the Lord's face and, and ask for forgiveness for their sins? And, you know, and, but they weren't. Uh, if you look at uh, all the things that happened, uh, you know, the, the uh, 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 I just made some lists, but some of the things that happened, there was no grapes, there was no, there was no wine because there was no grapes, there was no grain, there was no uh, oil uh, because they got oil from like olives and, and uh, olive trees were gone and, and uh, uh, all their fruit trees were gone, their livestock was probably starving in the fields, they didn't have anything to eat. Uh, they had the, the drought, and they actually probably had some fires uh, that were burning things up. Uh, it said even the sheep didn't have enough to eat. Uh, do you all know why they would say even the sheep didn't have enough to eat? Huh? What's that? Yeah, and they'll eat, they'll eat the grass right down to where there's nothing left. Okay? That was why the, the, uh, in the westerns, the cattlemen and the sheepmen were always fighting each other, because the sheep would go into a pasture, and they'd eat the... the the grass right down to the nubs, you know, and uh, so there wasn't anything for the cattle when they went in there. And uh, so when it says even the sheep uh, uh, had nothing to eat, that means that there wasn't anything to eat. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, let's let's kind of look through here. Uh, this first chapter, we know we we know what the background is. Now we've got a we've got total agricultural destruction uh, by the locusts and by drought, and uh, we need to see, you know kind of how Joel's addressing the people. So he says, first people he talks to are the elders, okay? The King James Version, there's, the elders are mentioned several times in here. This is in the King James Version, this one time they're called old men, okay? Hear this old men, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? So the old men are going to be the ones that can remember if anything like this has ever happened before, okay? Uh, how many of you have listened to stories from your grandparents about the way things used to be, you know? And, uh, and so the old men are the ones who can remember. And it says, uh, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children. Uh, First it says, hear this and give ear. What have we talked about recently where we needed to give ear and listen? Any, anything, remember, anything come to mind? Any studies we've done recently? How about Hebrews? Somebody say that? Uh -huh. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Okay, it's a chronic problem with all of us is listening and remembering. Uh, the other thing is tell your children. Uh, why is it important for us to pass information to from one generation to the next? That's right. So they won't make the same mistakes we made. Or... What else? 
Hmm? That's true. Yeah. Uh, it's important. God over and over told the Israelites that they needed to teach their children and to pass things down from generation to generation. Okay? When the, when the Israelites went into the promised land with Joshua, okay, the Bible says there was one generation that stayed faithful to the Lord. And after that, everything started going south. Okay? It just took one generation of people forgetting what God had done. You know? And, and so, uh, even though there was one generation that stayed faithful, they obviously did not teach their children enough about the greatness of God and what he had done for them that the children would carry it on. Okay? So, it's very important that... And, and so Joel is, is telling these people, tell your children about this. So they'll tell their children, and their children will tell another generation. And don't forget that this thing is happening. Don't forget that this, <clears throat> you've had this terrible disaster. Okay, because apparently they hadn't had anything like this in recent memory of, you know, several generations. And so he says, you need to pass this on. Let people know about what's going on here that uh, we've, had this, we've had all this uh, destruction and the situation that we find ourselves in. We can't make offerings in the temple. We can't put grain and wine offerings before God any longer because there's not any grain, there's not any wine, okay? Uh, there's nothing to eat. Well, what do you eat when there's 50 billion locusts out there, but there's nothing, there's no crops? What do you eat? Eat the locusts. That's right. And people do eat locusts over in the Middle East. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, John the Baptist, the Bible says that he ate locusts and wild honey. Okay? But when the locusts are eating up everything and that's all there is, uh, you pretty much have to eat the locusts. And uh, you can survive on locusts, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so he addresses the elders and all the inhabitants of the land, and then he addresses the drunkards. Uh, When he addresses drunkards, what's, when somebody's drunk, okay, uh, and, you know, what are some, what are some ways they act when somebody's drunk? What are they, how do they act? Crazy, okay. What happens when somebody gets drunk and drinks a lot of wine? What do they want to do? Huh? Yeah, their senses are dulled, aren't they? Okay. And so what do they typically do after a while? They go to sleep, okay? Now, is Joel specifically addressing only people who are drunk on wine here? I don't think so. When he talks about drunkards, he says awake drunkards, okay? Wake up, people. Wake up, okay? Uh, let's look at Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. And he's just, he's just told them about the end times, okay? And uh, 
all the things that were going to happen uh, before he comes back. And he says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Okay? Jesus was warning his disciples, stay awake. Okay? Now, he doesn't mean stay awake literally in terms of don't ever go to sleep, but he means stay awake spiritually. Stay awake when it comes to your relationship to the Lord and, and to uh, uh, your obedience to the Lord. Okay? Because what happens to us is we tend to get into, you know, we don't have to have a lot of wealth. We don't have to have a lot of, uh, of material things to go to sleep spiritually. Uh, these people obviously were in tremendous want and they were still asleep spiritually. But what happens is we tend to find a comfort zone that we like to, that we can, we can tolerate. Okay? And whatever comfort zone that is, we can kind of just get used to it. And uh, anything that disturbs that, uh, you know, we don't want. We, we resist. And so, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a sense in which divesting ourselves of our material things can help us be more aware of God and, and be more, have more allegiance to him and be more sensitive to his will. But just because a person doesn't have much doesn't mean that they're automatically going to be sensitive to God, okay? And these people weren't. And so that, that's something we have to remember and we have to think about, you know. Uh, you know, you may be sitting there and saying, well, you know, we don't have much right now. And, you know, uh, uh, so, you know, we're, uh, we're not burdened with all these material things and, and, and whatever. But you can still, you can still be lulled to sleep. Uh, you know, Ben said one time, he was talking about Satan, you know, about what Satan does. And he said, Satan is a master deceiver. Okay. And what a master deceiver can do is a master can, deceiver can lull you to sleep and you not even know it. Okay? And that's what had happened to these people here. They had been lulled to sleep and didn't even know it. Okay? They still had priests. They still knew to offer sacrifices. Okay? But they were in the midst of a, a disaster and they were unable to do that. Uh, so he talks about, he, he addressed them and he, and he said, you drunkards. Okay? And then he goes on and he talks about the tillers of the soil, the vine dressers, the priests, uh, the ministers of the altar, the elders again, and in terms of them being the leaders. Okay? The elders were not just the old men. The older men in a society back then tended to be the, the, social, the, the social leaders, the, like the civic leaders and whatever. Okay? And then again, he addressed all the inhabitants of the land. He addressed all the inhabitants of the land two different times here. Okay? He commanded them to take action. He told them to hear and to give ear. He told them to tell their children, okay? He told them to wake up. And then he said, weep, verse 5. Wail, verses 5, 11, and 13. Lament, be ashamed, 
put on sackcloth, pass the night in sackcloth. He told the priest to do that. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. These are things that, that the prophet commanded the people to do, okay? Uh, this is an act of repentance. Cry out to the Lord in verse 14. Again, gather the elders and all the inhabitants. They're supposed, to, they're supposed to have a repentance, okay? They're supposed to cry out to God. And uh, he's, he's telling them they need to do this. They need to put on sackcloth, okay? Uh, we're going to talk about this more later when we, talk in, when we get to it again in chapter 2. But uh, oftentimes we because of our maybe 20th century and 21st century attitudes that they were kind of born in the 19th century, I believe, uh, during what we call the, the revivalist period. Uh, we kind of think that form, God's not concerned about it anymore. That we can just do whatever comes naturally. You know, just follow the Spirit. You know, there's no need to do certain things a certain way because that's, that's ritualistic and uh, it's dry and, and it's not something that God, you know, really honors anymore. He wants us to just be led by the Spirit and follow the Spirit in the things that we do and there's no need for form, okay? But we're going to see that, and I think you can see that as Scott was, has been going through Exodus and talking about all of the specific instructions that God gave to the people about how the the tabernacle was to be built, how the offerings were to be offered, you know, how the priests were to perform their duties. God's very concerned about form, okay? Uh, and there's a form to repentance. In, in a certain sense, there's a form to repentance, okay? These people are being commanded to do certain things a certain way. And... Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to talk more about that when we get to it in chapter 2. But uh, there's the, this, this business about repentance uh, it involves uh, many things. Uh, it's, it is, it's true that it is definitely attitudes of the heart. But there's also things about the way it's to be carried out by the people. And so we're going to look at that, okay? Now, in terms of what we see, does anybody have any observations in chapter 1 regarding uh, the disaster and the call to, uh, Joel's call to repentance? Are there any, anybody have anything that they see in there that we haven't touched on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I remember, and I was uh, sharing this with somebody uh, back in the early 1990s, I think, uh, the World Series was being played in San Francisco, and they had an earthquake. And it was a major earthquake in San Francisco. In fact, the, uh, one of the bridges going across uh, the bay there, not the, not the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, but uh, going across from Oakland, uh, collapsed and people were killed. I mean, it was a it was a major earthquake, and there was a woman being interviewed on television 
and they asked her if she thought God was mad at San Francisco because of, you know, the homosexuality and, the, you know, the attitudes towards, you know, uh, things there. And, and her response was, and this was, this, one, this was a woman, I think, from the church community, okay? And she said, oh, God's not mad at us. This didn't happen because God was mad, you know? And, you know, I thought, that's fairly presumptuous, you know? We've lost the concept that God is angry with sin. And uh, like R.C. Sproul said in his series on the, the holiness of God, he said it's not a question of why every now and then God lets some natural disaster or something happen that kills a whole bunch of people, you know, like the tsunami in Malaysia or whatever. The, the question is, why doesn't he do it every day, you know? Because God is angry with sin, and God uh, is intent on judging sin. And the reason God doesn't do it every day is because he's a merciful God. And he wants to give people an opportunity to repent. And uh, we're going to see that here in the second chapter of Joel. And what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and read uh, the second chapter uh, over to uh, verse 12. Because that's, that's where it talks about the day of the Lord. And we're going to say just a little bit about that. And then we're going to pick up there next week. Okay, chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountain a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before and will never again be after them. Through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of, devour, of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Excuse me. <clears throat> before them, peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses and enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who, he who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Okay, so we transition from having experienced locust invasions, probably for a couple years maybe, and drought, that's pretty much decimated the land agriculturally to a prophecy of the imminent and awesome day of the Lord, okay? When we're talking about the day of the Lord here, that's a, that's a day of judgment. It's a day of great terror, okay? Uh, there are other references to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament uh, and in other, in other prophecies, uh, and we'll look at some of those next week. But 
obviously what's going on here is he is using, Joel is, is poetically using the imagery of a locust invasion to talk about what the day of the Lord is going to be like. Okay? So you kind of go from, okay, we've got this great army, okay, but is it an army of locusts or is it an army of people? Well, it's a, he, he kind of he uses imagery that from, the arm, from the locusts, but it's obvious that there's something different about this. This is not just a locust invasion because um, he talks about the fact that, that there never has been an army like this ever before and there'll never be one like it ever again, okay? through all generations. So this is uh, this great and awesome day of the Lord that he's talking about here is, is a different and far greater judgment than what these people have just experienced uh, on their land. And so that's where we're going to pick up next week. Uh, please read uh, the book of Joel in its entirety, uh, probably two or three times if you can, because it's only three chapters long, okay? And uh, get familiar with <clears throat> what it says. Get familiar with kind of the, the flow of the, of, the, of the writing. And so we can come back next week. And we're going we're gonna to spend a lot of time next week talking about uh, the day of the Lord and then God's response to the people's repentance. Okay? And then if we have some time, we'll, we'll finish up with what's in chapter 3. So uh, let's have a word of prayer and close. Father, you are the source of all wisdom. You are the one who teaches us. Lord, I, I can stand up here and, and talk, but Lord, you're the one who teaches from your word. Father, I pray that uh, some things in Joel will stick tonight with each of us. Some things that uh, we can take away and apply them to our own lives. Things that will cause us to have a better appreciation of, of who you are and what your character is. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these Old Testament writers, these prophets that uh, were faithful to you, that probably endured scorn and persecution from uh, the people for what they said but Lord they were faithful to speak Father I pray that we will also be faithful to testify to you and to speak uh, in our workplaces and our schools wherever we may be Lord to uh, testify to your greatness and your goodness and to have an opportunity Lord and, and to take opportunities we have to to share the gospel with the people that we come in contact with. Lord, I pray that uh, we, you would make the, this writing of Joel uh, come alive to us, that we could gain from it tremendously. Uh, I pray for next week. I pray that you just help me next week to, to get through the things that you want me to get through. And Father, for each of us to go look at it on our own and and uh, uh, Lord, see what you're saying to us from it. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.